0: New Species, the podcast where we talk to scientists about their discoveries of organisms that are new to science, but not necessarily new to nature. We talk to the authors of these studies to get behind-the-scenes stories, to talk about why these discoveries should matter to everyone, not just scientists, and to help people better understand the wonderful biodiversity of our planet. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast. You're listening to New Species, the podcast where I talk to scientists about their discoveries of new species that they recently described. I'm your host, Brian Patrick, and today we're joined by Dr. Jade Savage, a professor of biology in the Department of Biological Sciences at Bishops University in Quebec, Canada. She's here today to talk to us about her paper published on March 15th in Zookeys, in which she and her co author described four new species of mucid flies from North America. Welcome, Jade. Hi, Patrick. First, just so people understand, what is a mucid fly?
1: I guess the, the simplest way or the best reference I could give anyone would be it's a housefly and all of its cousins. So I, Musca domestica is the one species most of us know wherever you live in the world. So that would be your best reference. And then even though we're talking about six or seven thousand species... All of the cousins are sort of a derivative on that model, ranging from tiny to a bit larger. But we're still talking sort of fairly nondescript grayish flies most of the time. Although, you know, when you stick them under a microscope, they come alive.
0: Indeed, they do. You get to see all the fine details and and tell us a little bit about that. What kind of, how big are these things? What kind of colorations are they? I know sometimes the eyes vary in color and things like that. Can you tell us a little bit more just about their physical appearance and how big they are?
1: Yes. Well, muses do vary a lot. So as as we'll go through this interview, I will keep on telling you that whatever they do or they display, it's always a gradient or a range because it's a quite a variable group in terms of morphology. Um, for example, the Taxon that I'm covering in this paper, Drymia, is what I would say a medium-sized mason. So somewhere along the range of five to eight millimeters. Uh, so they're not tiny. They're they're not bulky, but they would say I would say they're similar in size to a housefly. Um, but so about a
0: quarter. Quarter to half an inch long in, in the American terms, right?
1: I would say more along the quarter than a half inch yeah. mustard would be a chunky one. There are yeah. some chunky ones, but they tend to be the exception as opposed to the rule.
0: And then what about the, and you said the coloration. There's some other variation, though. I noticed you just even in your paper, you can see some coloration in the eyes. I think that's not something most people think about. Uh. Uh, uh, when it comes to this. I saw some that had some red and some that had some yellows.
1: And... That is probably an artifact of not only the, the photographic procedure but also since these were all dried specimens, on occasion when they dry, we do tend to see changes in the natural coloring of these groups. So mustids don't tend to have much in terms of eye patterns, not like for example some um, tabanids, like horse flies, that have crazy eye patterns. So mussels, um I'd say some of them do have interesting color patterns. There are a few metallic taxa, so that would look just like the green bottles or the blue bottles. Uh, There are also a few um, groups that have deep yellow wings, so very flashy wings, often contrasting against a pitch-dark black body. So these would be the more, uh, I'd say, the more attractive members of the group. But as a general rule, uh, musteds would not be noticed for their flashy colors. They tend to be gray, brownish, grayish, uh, blackish all along the range. And the males tend to have sometimes more, uh, either more pronounced or uh, darker colors, whereby most females will often be a bit more washed out. So it depends, again, genus by genus, species by species. But the I'd say the more spectacular members of the musteds tend to be the males.
0: What do we know about these flies as far as what they do? Do we have any idea what they do ecologically, specifically the ones that you're talking about in your paper?
1: Yep. So um, musteds, as a rule, do everything. If it's organic, they eat it. And if it's between minus 20 to over 40 degrees Celsius, they inhabit it. So basically, this is a very, very polyvalent group. Drymia is a um, genus that tends to be way more abundant in Alpine and Arctic ecosystems. So that is what makes it, I'd say, a bit closer to my specialty because I've been working mostly with uh, Arctic and, well, northern and Alpine fauna. So the interesting thing about Drymia and the reason why my co-author is Russian is because a lot of these species are found all along the Arctic Circle. And therefore are very common, or sometimes the same species are found both in Canada, um, Alaska, and then all around the northern parts of Russia. So this is a group that is well represented and quite diverse in alpine and in northern ecosystems. What they do in these ecosystems vary again by species. Um, most of them is immatures. We don't know much about them uh, but they can be associated with for example mammalian dung uh, into which they will usually actually feed on other insects as opposed to be uh, coprophagous but the adults will be plant visitors well plant flower visitors so some of them have Extremely elongated mouth parts, so basically a long uh, labella, a long tongue, so that they can go and pick up nectar. Um, others will have a shorter or shorter mouth parts, but they're all basically nectar and pollen. Well, some of them are also pollen feeders, so because they have these tiny mouth parts. Taking in pollen grains is not as simple as it sounds. They don't chew; they drink. Uh, but some of them have uh, special adaptations. So some of the Drymia species have special adaptations so that they're able to suck in the uh, the pollen grains. Mi- so they're not restricted only to nectar, but they can actually add these proteins to that to their diet.
0: So pollination is is potentially part of it, and you even mentioned in your paper that it's not considered necessarily a major pollinator, but it could have some pollination function, obviously going to the flowers and for nectar. And what I thought was really interesting is the part you mentioned here about the larvae. Some of them are actually carnivorous. So they're hanging out on, say, like dung or other habitats, which they might be found like in the soil or whatever, not just eating the dung, but they're actually hunting the other things that are on the dung. Is that what I'm gathering from what you said?
1: For some of them, yes. Again, a lot of these we have to deduce based on the shape of the larval skeleton. So these are... uh I wouldn't say that Dramea is an obscure group, but because it is of no medical veterinary relevance, it is of no agricultural relevance. It's not even an important pollinator. This is not a group that has been studied a lot. And so we know very little of its immatures. We know we find them in occasion associated with mammalian dung. It's been... Uh, speculated based on the anatomy of the immature mouthparts that they would feed on a variety of different things and possibly switch diets sometimes between the different instars. So when they come out of the eggs, the larvae are very small. And as they grow and molt and grow through subsequent molds, they might actually be able to expand or sometimes even shift their diet. And so this is a group that would be, or what we know, the little we know about them, is that they would be mostly decomposers in their immature stages, but that they could also be uh, either probably not obligatory predators, but occasional predators as well.
0: So they're, they're filling a variety of ecological niches throughout the course of their life. And you mentioned a little bit about their habitat. These are a strictly North American group, right? The Drymea? Nope. Or no. not North America, I'm sorry, Northern Hemisphere, Northern Hemisphere Yes, group.
1: they are absolutely, yes. uh, they're... Restricted the Northern Hemisphere, which is interesting because, I mean, there's usually one or more uh, rogue species that will tend to expand in the Southern Hemisphere. But in that case, or in this case, um, this is really a Northern Hemisphere group. The diversity is all in the Northern Hemisphere. Vast majority of species, and actually the ha- China has the highest number of species. Um, so it really varies depending on where you are, but it's definitely a Northern um, hemisphere taxon, yes,
0: and the habitats that they're in. In these, now there seem to be a variety of these as well. So, for example, one of the species we'll talk about, one of your new species, is found down in Mexico. I'm assuming in an alpine area, and then you also mentioned another species that uh, is found in the one of the higher plateaus of China. So, are these ranging? Is it basically just high altitude and high and high latitude types of things? So, it could be grassland, forest, both.
1: It really, that is quite a a species specific question. And the catch 22 here is that we also don't know the full range of every species. So for example, personally, I've only collected uh, live, maybe a handful, six or seven species of drymia, which I was able to observe live in half the time, not even knowing what it was until I came back to the lab. So um, some of these species we know have a very broad range. And they tend to either favor alpine areas or northern areas. So we're looking at one species will tend to have more of a northern distribution, whereby others will tend to stick to mountain ranges. But one of our, I'd say, that looking distribution wise, one of the ones that is quite interesting is uh, Drimea spinatarsis, which is uh, a species that was previously known only from North America. But then we realized that it had been described under a different name in Russia. But these are very disjunct distribution. They're both found in Alpine areas very far away from one another. And... These are striking flies. I mean, there was no doubt that we were dealing with a, a true synonymy here. And this was, what, I'd say, one of the biggest surprises that we had working on this, on this revision together. And that is also why when you're dealing with a northern group um, and even alpine, an alpine one, you kind of have to take the global fauna into account. Because if you only stick to one short area, you will be missing things. So I'm not saying we're not missing anything, but it was quite useful to have a co-author with a very good palearctic expertise. She knows the Russian fauna extremely well. And so together we had almost a full coverage of what things could be along the full range of media.
0: Yeah, and and within that that northern range then, so what I was trying to get at earlier here was, are some of these found, some specific species as far as we know, found maybe like in grassland habitat? Some of the others I'm sure are found in like more wooded habitat based on the alpine description. But are they like alpine meadows where they're specializing as opposed to alpine grassland type area?
1: That goes Savannah. a little further than what I could... So what I can report is based on my observations. So for example, okay. um, in 2005, I was in um, Rankin Inlet, Nunavut, so a fairly northern location um, in Canada. And I remember seeing one species of Drymia, one of the bigger ones, and that one would only be seen in the tundra so obviously we were far enough to be in tundra habitat there so no trees but i had a number of malaysia traps set up never caught a single specimen but i caught dozens chasing these guys on hot rocks so they would bask on these rocks and so again t- trying to, to really know the full habitat range of a species always depends on your collecting methods because if i had been relying only on my malaysia traps I would have missed the fact that these guys were all over the place, but they had wanted nothing to do with my trap. They were always on these um, sunny rocks, and they were only found on sunny days as well. So, Drymia will often be found in either tundra or alpine meadows where there's a lot of short um, flowers. So, this is where I've been, um, I've seen most of them. But some of them will also expand into more um, bushy or even uh, forested areas. So this is really species specific. But those that I'm most familiar with, I found primarily in fairly open uh, alpine meadows or strict, well, or alpine tundra even in northern tundra as well.
0: Excellent. And then, and then you do have a specific species that you just named that was found down in Mexico. And I believe that was one of two that are found in Mexico. In, uh, one of the new species plus one an existing one. And and where are those hanging out then? They're obviously at high elevation.
1: This is, well, yes, but this is information we know only because of the collection label. So this new species was described based on the series of material that we found in the Canadian National Museum in Ottawa. And basically we went through their unsorted flies and came up with this amazing series of things we could not match to anything else. It was clearly similar to another species found in down south in Mexico and in the U.S., but it was quite different as well. So um, we knew from the locality records that it was found at high elevation. However, a high elevation tells me nothing about the habitat, and I don't know enough about those localities to be able to assess what its environment or immediate environment would be, which is why... My goal for the next five years is to trip, uh, well, not trip, but to to take a trip, ideally through the Southern West Coast, so down to California, and then keep on moving so that I could patch together what I would say are our biggest blind spots with this group. Because we know quite a bit now about the Arctic fauna, uh, even the high elevation Northern fauna, but there's a lot of interesting material down in California. Uh, and moving further down south, in, I bet that there are gaps in our paper that will be filled uh, once we manage to get there.
0: Mary, you described four new species in this, and I know that the vast majority of the work you did was morphological. So you're looking at the, vis- the physical characteristics of these things. How did you decide that these were new species based on those morpho- morphological characters? Like, what were you looking at and saying, like, okay, this is definitely a new species versus this new species? You've alluded to it in some ways in different places, so let's put a fine point on it.
1: Well, I wish I could give you a recipe, you know, and... and Oh, yeah,
0: there's never a recipe in taxonomy. There's never
1: a recipe in taxonomy, (laughs) and there's always... But there's no recipe, but there's always a philosophy. So there's some of us which tend to be lumpers, and some of us which tend to be splitters. And when you use only morphology, then the definition of how much difference is enough varies from one person to the next so my co-author and i used a bit of a combination approach here so we used two tools so of course morphology was the ground of of most of the work we did here we also used dna barcodes we were trying to test or at least see how informative the dna barcodes were to identify or separate species and, and unfortunately in this case the answer was not very much uh, we, we uh, get
0: 22 out of 31, We two thirds.
1: We got barcodes. That just means two. nine out
0: of the 31 can't tell you anything, right?
1: <laughs> no, actually we did get barcodes for, for 20. Well, to me, this, this was a high failure rate. So, yeah. um, when you can't, because I when, was being sarcastic. Yes. Yeah, I'm sorry.
0: When <laughs> for you the, lo- for I, listeners who may not have caught that, I was being a little sarcastic. I apologize for that. That's Please, okay. I didn't mean to interrupt you.
1: Um, but the thing is when you look at and, and I think for us, it was a we knew of this trend, We had, I'd seen it before, I just did not realize how widespread it would be in the group because when you look at the males in this group, I mean, I don't even need to stick them under a microscope. I can go like this and say, you are different than this other species. They have such striking morphological features yet the DNA barcodes don't work. Other markers work, would work, I'm sure. We just did not have the resources to use these other markers. But that being said, the work we did on DNA barcodes actually yielded um, the groundwork for one of the four species we described because it allowed us to zone into a group that was separate from the rest um, based on its DNA barcode. And when we looked at the material in there, it was obvious that both the males and the females were different than anything else, and especially their association. And unlike many other drymeas, the males had nothing special They were actually quite similar to some of the other species, but the females had more distinction and could more easily be segregated from the other uh, similar taxa. So together, we considered the DNA barcodes and the, I'd say, subtle morphological differences enough to segregate that as a new species. The other three species had a different process. These were described exclusively based on morphological differences and in that case I would say we 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 needed a bit more so we we went conservative neither of us are splitters and so before we we both don't like describing things which will be synonymized years after so we tried to be careful in our assessment of what is a new species and uh, for example Drymea woodorum has this crazy long long patch of hair between the forelegs. I mean it is a feature I had never seen in any species of Drymea and it was so amazingly different um, that I knew right there that this is this was something new. And so in that case it was one striking feature that brought our attention to it. And then uh, there were echoes of other differences all over the body. And for that one it was mostly in the male. Some of the females as well. Uh, the other two species, uh, for example, Drymia vacheratii. This one is um, is something that we we cannot claim full discovery for. There was a set of specimens that were set in a box in a corner at again the Canadian National Museum, the CNC. That series had been put aside by Dick Vacherat, which was a um, prominent North American dipterist and, and an amazing guy altogether. And he had already detected that these were weird and special, and he just said them there on the side. Dick has passed and close to a decade ago. And so we picked up where he left. And basically he was right, even though the guy was working on so many things. I can't believe he had an eye for these, but he was able to detect that they were different from anything else. And in there, it was clear to us again. A combination of features, never one thing, but the fact that there were differences in colors, certain morphology, the locality of bristles. The thing about massids, which tend to make them uninteresting to many people, is that it's all about bristles. So counting bristles, how many? Three bristles, four bristles. That can I think say... that's
0: true for a lot of the flies I've discovered.
1: Yes, yes. I guess is when you that but... in,
0: that in veins on the wings.
1: Yes, but with mycids, I'd say the bristles are the worst, and it's leg bristles, which is unfortunate because the legs are the first thing to go away when your specimens are damaged. So these are the features we used. So overall, as I said, there's no recipe. It was really a question of looking at them, then trying to see can we associate them with a female? Because this is so, can we find in the same series both males and females that do not match any of the other groups? Is there anything special about the distribution? Do we have enough material also? Because we do have, for example, I have material of two groups that we set aside due to DNA barcodes. They look different, but we had two and I think six specimens of these. Super damaged, not a male uh, for one of the two series. So we figured, you know what? Let's leave this for when we have better material. Because to me, a DNA barcode means nothing. It needs to have an... I mean, if you work with broader biodiversity patterns, it's interesting. It's a unit. But as a taxonomist, I'm not interested in the unit. I'm interested in what it looks like.
0: A combination of, uh, in, in one case, not only just the morphology looking at the barcodes, and in the others... Really boiling it down to how many bristles do you have here? Do you have other striking features, other things that we can physically use as characteristics to be like, you look different from this, right? Right. Yes,
1: and, and it's different. I'd say when you start working with these flies long enough, you will know, for example, that in this one group, like in drymea, there's a lot of features in the legs, especially the shape of the hind tibia. So we knew that we had to look there for some of the features that are used to segregate the other or discriminate between the other species. So that's also, we use some of the traditional characters as well as some of the other differences that we found. For the three, um, three out of four species, we only have fairly old material so one of our goals is to go and hunt these things so that we can get DNA barcodes and really try to get an additional layer of evidence that would really help us, even though we know that DNA barcodes are not the holy grail for drymea, um, they have been working quite well for some other uh, groups. Sure. So again here, it's, it's, it's always a case of trying to get as much lines of evidence as you can, but there is no cutoff or precise point where you decide. It comes down to a personal decision.
0: Especially in these hyper-variable groups, right? Because sometimes it, it becomes difficult. Like, it, it, is it just within species variation or is it between species variation that you're seeing? Yeah, That can be very difficult, especially in small Fairly uniformly colored organisms, like some of these flies, I'm assuming must be, right? You have to really have an expert eye to be able to really look at those details.
1: Yes, yeah, so and you also have to be open to, um, I mean, eventually, once you look at material from enough geographical localities, and especially when you're looking at features like colors, um, that's when you realize that, for example, the specimens from Canada, from, from Quebec, Canada, are yellow. And they have yellow legs. The ones from BC have darker legs. And You think, woo, new species. And then as you move through the mid-range, you see that there's combinations and variations. And so you realize that you're really dealing with polymorphism. And in some groups, for example, in bees, the bee people, they know this. They work with these polymorphic taxa all the time. In flies, there are some groups that are quite polymorphic. um, But I think it's not something that is as widespread or at least is, as widely known as in some other insect groups. So we still have Indeed. a lot of work to do, but we're, we're, we don't see it as much.
0: Okay, so now we know what these flies do, what, or at least have some idea of what they could be doing ecologically. We understand there's a, lot, there's a knowledge gap there because they're not terribly well-known because they're just not important to humans, quote-unquote important to humans, uh, medically, ac- economically, agriculturally, etc., And I have a rough idea of, of, pretty good idea, actually, of how you decided that these are new species. How'd you pick the names? It looks like you went straight patronomy on these, right? You were just going for naming after individuals?
1: Yeah. I mean, every project is different. Um, You know, the first, when I did my first revision, then these were my names, my species. And I figured, okay, I'll name one after my mom and one after Darth Vader because I can't. Um, This time around, the process was a bit different. Uh, I was working with a Russian colleague. We've both worked with mussels for a long time. There are very few, um, I mean, I'm no spring chicken, but trust me, there are very few people working with mussels that are under 50 years old. So there's actually quite a, just a handful of us left. And so we started brainstorming about how could we honor those before us that have managed to do the groundwork that got us there or where we are today and so we went on the basically the four names are four dipterists of course uh, that have made major contributions to massets so each one of them has described species massets has uh, had an influence either on me on her um, i've known Three of the four personally, and the, there's only one of these four people still alive today, uh, Dr. Adrian Pont, which uh, lives in Britain actually, and has been uh, an amazing mentor to both myself and Vera Sorokina, and so it was important for us to to recognize the influence he's had on our on our lives and our, our professional well on our professional lives that is, uh, so that's why we decided to go patronyms. Um, because there are also very few female mustard specialists, um, that's, those are the names we chose. So definitely four very influent, competent, and amazing people.
0: Yeah, so you had Pont Vakaroth Wood, which is named after a couple, right? So that's the, the, the husband and wife. Yeah. And then your first one was Huckett, is that yeah, right?
1: Yeah, H.C. Huckett. So actually, Monty Wood uh, passed away um, less than a year ago. So we actually had time. The, the original plan was would uh, woodeye but we met with them uh, in person about a year, two years, well, before COVID, obviously, and we asked permission to name the species after him. And he said, actually, he and then, of course, he looked at the label and then he said, I collected this with my wife. So would you mind changing to acknowledge the fact that this was a specimen called by both I woods, him and his wife. And that is why it's not would I, but wouldorum, which reflects the plural. And so that's an interesting little bit of information behind that one. But I thought it was a, I was, I was glad that he asked us to do that.
0: Oh, that's fascinating. And and what a great way to make sure that you also include all of the people who were in, in on the specimen collection in this particular case, making sure to, to acknowledge that his wife was in on this as well. Yeah. Now, why should people know about these flies? We've talked a lot about them. And we've, we've already said that as far as, like, major economic importance, which is really what it boils down to, medical or economic importance for humans, why should we know about these?
1: Um, the, it's always the, the money shot, isn't it? Um, for me, I mean, every species counts. It doesn't matter if we're talking a mollusk, a mammal, It just counts a bit more to me if it's a fly, but I mean, those are personal preferences. (laughs) Um, But beyond that, if I had to put a a sort of bringing it back to value as to what does it bring to us humans, for me, their interest lies primarily in their habitat. So the fact that they're Northern and Alpine, so they're part of an ecosystem or, or a set of ecosystems which are currently undergoing rapid changes. So with climate change and especially rapid global warming, these northern habitats are changing so fast uh, and the same thing is happening to alpine habitats even though we're not really seeing it we're just seeing the tree line moving up a bit every year but we don't see it the same way as we see uh, permafrost melting and in uh, the tree line climbing up north and so those habitats are changing rapidly and to me this is, a chance for us to to have a a baseline. So if we don't know what's there, how can we know how it's changing? And I know that addressing these questions with insects is difficult. It's easier with plants. It's easier with larger animals. But um, these bugs are part of the ecosystem. They're without any decomposers up north. It's not because things decompose slower that they don't have to decompose. Um, They're a, a major part of that ecosystem. And they're also an important part of the food chain. So a lot of these flies are uh, big enough and abundant enough to be um, bird food, lots of bird food, on occasion, fish food. So they are an important part of these ecosystems. So I think if we had to think about why we should care, it's mostly because they are a part of these uh, fragile and rapidly changing ecosystems.
0: Right, and they're helping to move those nutrients around by being the decomposers and even the predators in some ways, moving the nutrients through the system and, of course, being part of the food in the system as well.
1: Yeah, and and, I mean, there are flower visitors. I would not push my luck enough to say that they are important important contributors to pollination services uh, because it's been shown that even though they're big and hairy, they don't seem as efficient as others. That being said, though, sometimes they're strong in numbers, and they can be extremely abundant on uh, in certain areas. So again, the flag, the fact that they are flower visitors, does also um, tell us a little bit more about their role in these uh, ecosystems.
0: And indeed, I would take that even further, saying that we don't know a whole lot about these specimens, and so these particular species and this genus in general. Who knows? Maybe there is something that really depends on these for that pollination. And we just have yet to figure that out. Quite possible. And just take more time and more research.
1: <laughs> yes. Although I have so many other questions around that. If I stop at, uh, you know, why, why is this relevant? I have other aspects of my research that are applied. And I use this taxonomy work more as a, how could I say this? To me, it's a delight to discover new things. This fascination of new discovery, regardless of application, is something that keeps me going every day. That that is the main reason why I do this work. So isn't that
0: a special moment when you're there and you realize, oh my gosh, I think this is new.
1: Absolutely like nobody
0: else has realized it is that this is a new species. People may have seen it before, but maybe they haven't even. And you get that special moment of where you're just like, nobody else knows that this is a new thing but me right now it is isn't that a fun and exciting moment
1: it is and and the thrill doesn't diminish with new discoveries it's not because you've already described dozens of species that the next one is not as exciting so this is something that i keep thrilling for and keep hoping for whenever i start a new project so it is it's like
0: intellectual mind candy it's almost like some sort of narcotic to your brain to keep doing it once you've described one species, you're like, I have to do more. I think it's a I little I want to bit, find more. Uh,
1: I think it's a bit like hunting, you know? So, so people yeah. hunt with photographs. People go birding for lists. It, there's a... Uh, I don't know. There's a magic reward to describing something that no one's ever noticed before. And getting the privilege of naming it is... You know, my mind still gets, gets blown away at this uh, th- th- this amazing opportunity.
0: Well, Jade Your enthusiasm is completely contagious. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really appreciate it. These are wonderful flies to learn about. And I'm so happy that we got to to learn all about the process with you. Thank you for your time.
1: Well, thank you so much. It was great answering your questions. And uh, I hope we meet again.
0: Indeed. I hope we do too. Thank you. Thank you. (laughs) Once again... Dr. Savage's paper is on the March 15th issue of Zookeys, and the title of the paper is Review of the North American Fauna of Drymia and Evaluation of DNA Barcodes for Species Level Identification in the Genus. See the episode details for a link to this open access paper. To learn more about Dr. Savage, visit our faculty webpage through Bishops University. That's ubishops.ca. s.ca. U-B-I-S-H-O-P-S Be sure to follow New Species on Twitter at podcast species. And like the podcast on Facebook. That's facebook.com forward slash new species podcast. And if you'd like to support this podcast, go to patreon.com forward slash new species podcast.